0: And since Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, the church has historically celebrated Ascension Day 40 years after Easter. And one of the Psalms that is read or taught on that holy feast day is Psalm 15. Jesus, when he ascended, was admitted into the presence of his Father and the fullness of his glory. His mission having been carried out to the full and he left nothing undone. He was the first to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. But he hasn't entered into his rest yet because he's still working in us and he's still working through us. He's still working to admit the rest of his church into the presence of his Father, just as he was admitted And this morning's psalm describes what a worshiper who has received admission should look like. Young Christians, young theologians, I have a couple of questions for you this morning. First first question I want you to be thinking about as you listen this morning. What has Jesus done with God's law? What has Jesus done with God's holy list of do's and don'ts? What has Jesus done with it? That's the first question. And then the second question is this. After you've answered the first question, answer this. What does God want you to do in response? What does God want you to do in response? This is the good news of the Lord Jesus as it comes to us through his father David. This is the good news that comes to us through a grocery list of moral do's and don'ts. A good news that we have a hard time believing is good news. Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what done, And does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a vile person is despised. But who honors those who fear him. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Father, we come to you this morning as those who are in love with our to-do lists. We are in love with our tasks, our to-do lists that stretch out from our head to our toes, and yet our to-do lists that we hold and cling to because we find identity in them. An identity that we'd rather create for ourselves than the one that you've given to us in Jesus. We are like this. We're in love with our to-do lists. We are in love with our lists of accomplishments. And yet we are shackled by them as well. And so we pray this morning that by your word, through the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus, you would free us. You would free us from our lists and let us be content and happy and overjoyed to replace them with Jesus' fulfilled list on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You to be seated. Well, if you were a New Yorker, between the years of 1920 and 1933... You lived in a country where the drinking of alcohol was no longer legal. You didn't ask the dinner guests at your home if they preferred red or white wine. You didn't call up your buddies on a Friday to see if they could get off early and meet at the barley house for a beer. And you didn't get together in Jason Bobo's backyard for a whiskey tasting. Or at least you didn't do any of these things openly. But while walking down Wall Street or Fifth Avenue, you might end up in a conversation with a stranger, and after talking for a little while about the Yankees season, or your family's, or the new job, and how it's been working out, this stranger might hand you a very interesting-looking business card. And on this card might be written the words of a well-known restaurant in town, such as, Keen's, good food is our specialty. Or a card that simply read, the tree club. Or maybe even a card that just has some numbers on it, 53 East on 51st. Cards that basically said little to nothing as far as a court of law might be concerned. But cards that said everything you needed if it was your desire to be admitted to a secret club called a speakeasy. A place that you had to whisper about. A place that you had to speak easy, speak softly about so as not to raise the alarm of police or federal prohibition officers. This card might look unimportant, but it was your entrance ticket, your price of admission if wanting a drink was of greater significance to you than obeying the law. Because you see, every place has its price of admission. That question has been settled. Been settled for a long time. The real question is this: what club, what circle, what group do you want to be admitted to? Is an academic? Do you or your children for you desperately need admission to the club of the gifted and talented? The top 7% of the class, so that you can make it into the state university of your choice. Or maybe even the Full Ride Scholarship Club. Do you need entrance into the Jock of the Year Club? Best at soccer, best at basketball, maybe the arts, best at music, best at dance. Or maybe instead of climbing social ladders through accomplishment, you're more into the need to be known and liked and trusted by the right people club. To have the right people seen standing around you smiling in your Facebook pictures. To have the right connections that keep good business flowing your way. Maybe you feel the need to be the quickest with a good joke because that gets you admitted into the popular and well-liked club. You need to be the healthiest, the most attractive, the one who has a body and an appearance that tells those around you that you belong to the very I'm-in-control club. Not just of your diet, but everything else. The excellent parent club is a very popular one. Not just in our circles, but everywhere, actually. What's the club or the clubs of your choice? And what's the price of admission to them? What do you need to do and to keep doing? Who do you need to know? Because it's the answers to these questions that form our lists, Our lists of what we need to accomplish, who we need to know, and when all of it needs to happen. The price of admission to these circles defines the lists that you and I make. And do you know who else has a list that defines the price of admission into his presence? God does. It's not popular to say that of God. It's not popular to believe it or say it in our culture. And it's not even popular in a whole lot of the church, actually. But the Bible says it's true. The Bible says it's true all over its pages. And this is what Psalm 15 is about. David begins in verse 1 with a question... About admission, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the rest of the psalm up until the very last line is God's reply given in a list of moral virtues. But before we move on to those, let's be clear first about what David is asking in verse 1. If the rest of the psalm is the list describing the price of admission, and it is, what group, what club is David wanting to be part of? What does he mean by asking who can be allowed to dwell in God's tent on his holy hill? Well, certainly there's the idea of the Old Testament tabernacle, the tent which traveled around with the Israelites where worship was to take place. The sacrifices and the offerings brought by the people to the priests. And in David's day, this center of worship had moved to Jerusalem, to God's chosen and holy city, which was literally on top of a hill called Mount Zion. And so David is asking who should be admitted into the Lord's tent. He's saying, Describe for me, Lord the most beautiful picture of someone who should be admitted into your tabernacle of worship. But he's asking more than this too. He's not just talking about proper worship. He's not just asking about that. He's also asking about relationship. Because for David, worship and relationship can't be separated It's a picture of the tabernacle tent, but it's also a question about intimate fellowship, like the meal that Abraham has with God just outside Abraham's tent in Genesis 18. Because for David, you don't just worship a God you like, like cheering for a favorite athlete or a team of athletes. You only worship a God you know. And who knows you. Which means you only worship the living God. Because you can only have a real relationship with a God who's alive. And so David is asking, what does it take to know you, God? Describe for me the type of person who's allowed into your presence because she has a relationship with you. You know her and she knows you. It's not just about entering the tent, but about being those who dwell there, those who feel more at home in God's tent than anywhere else, because everywhere else feels like exile. Scholars, all the way from the early centuries of, the, of church history down to even modern times, have noted that there's ten items in the list of Psalm 15. The ten items don't line up with all ten commandments, and so we can't you know, draw real neat lines from thou shalt not kill to one part of this list, and then maybe another line from thou shalt not commit adultery to another part of the list. It doesn't work quite like that. But the number ten is important. Cassiodorus, who was a 6th century church father from southern Italy, called this psalm a spiritual song of ten chords. For Cassiodorus, Psalm 15 is a beautiful song written with ten notes played again and again like a harp calling you and I to remember that the Ten Commandments are at the center of the law. And the law is the expression of who God is and what God loves. This song is meant to symbolize God's morality in its fullness just like the Ten Commandments do. And so God gives his list. You asked for it, David. And so here it is. Verse 2 is very comprehensive. Someone who walks blamelessly is someone whose total life and thoughts and words and deeds show nothing that another person could point to and go, Ah, see, I knew it. There's some sin. This person is to speak truth in his heart, meaning that they're to be a person of integrity, which is the opposite of Psalm 12, verse 2, which says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In our passage, deception is not just something that we say that is an obvious lie, Deception is when we intend for others to go away with an impression that we know in our hearts is false and wrong, but we let them go away with that false impression anyway, whether we say anything actively or not. Deception is any time we pretend to be someone on the outside that we know we're not on the inside. And I don't have to tell you that when it's defined this way, Deception is the common language of every culture throughout the world. When defined this way, deception flows from every nook and every corner of every room and from the bottom of every heart. And God's answer to David is saying that one who is admitted into my presence is not like that. In fact, this entire psalm is a description of a person of integrity could almost summarize the whole psalm that way it's describing a person of integrity we could say that the one who's admitted into relationship with god and worship is someone whose words and actions reflect what's also true in their hearts that if all of us were turned into glass for a brief moment so that nothing was hidden we would find thoughts and motivations in our hearts to line up perfectly with our words and our actions and deeds which please god This is true integrity according to God's law. In verse 3, integrity looks like always seeking to speak truth that will help when it's needed and to never seek to slander others. The idea behind the word slander is someone who sneaks around like a spy, hoping to hear bits and pieces of secret and juicy information to use later. When the time comes. To use information like a sniper uses a carefully chosen bullet. You quickly look around. You make sure that you're covered. And then you assassinate somebody else's reputation, someone else's character, by using your words like a long-range rifle. And if you planned it just right, no one else will even know that you did it or trace it back to you. In verse 4, integrity looks like hating what God hates. Notice, it does not look like being nice. There's way too much of that, I think, in our Christian circles. Too often we hear, you know, I really like Jack. He's a nice guy. I really like Jill. She's really sweet. And what we mean is, of course, that that the person is socially skillful. That person is quick with compliments, has a pleasant tone about their voice, or they're quick to introduce themselves, easy to get to know, has a great sense of humor, or never says anything unpleasant. And these things certainly aren't bad, obviously. There's nothing unchristian about those things, and they have their usefulness but you could have all of those social graces in spades and be very far from holiness. And Too many moms and dads spend a lot of energy trying to pound these things in their children, thinking they're doing the Lord's work instead of actually believing verse 4, which says that God's list of holiness should actually include hatred. Hatred shows up on the list. God actually has a lot of hatred. He just has hatred for the right things. No one hates better than God hates. And no one loves better than God loves. He does both perfectly. Which means that he can also sometimes be angry. Because righteous anger comes from actually caring being angry when injustice happens to others, and being angry when love is withheld. God isn't indifferent about anything, because to never be angry is to be indifferent. And God's not indifferent about anything, and He's not indifferent about anyone. And we have sanctified indifference in our culture. And even sometimes in the church. We have sanctified the "eh" attitude. In order to escape unpleasant emotions. And God isn't like this. And the person of Psalm 15 isn't to be like this either. In verse 5, integrity looks like using power... For the good and protection of the weak instead of using power only to gain more power for yourself, even at others' expense. The Old Testament law forbade you to lend money to another Israelite with interest or to make a profit by selling food to others. You were not to use your superior position of having money or having food to take advantage of others who had neither. Instead, you were to use your position of power to help those who were weak, just as God, the all-powerful, does for us. And so here's God's list. Here's God's answer to the question, who can be in relationship with you, God, and worship you? And our problem is we are people Who love lists for all the wrong reasons. We are generally a fairly educated and successful group of people in our congregation. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it does typically mean that we salivate in the presence of a list like a dog who stumbles across a piece of meat dropped by the butcher. We are a culture of list takers, people who loved the challenge of a to-do list given to us, a list of requirements, a list of accomplishments hung out in front of our face like a carrot for us to run after and check off and conquer and accomplish. And we're a culture of list makers. People who love to make our own lists for others to live up to. For others to accomplish so that they can earn our good graces and our very high opinion. And our list covers everything from household chores to what it means to be a good parent. And I don't have to tell you But just about all of us are list takers and list makers. It's true for Ellen and me. Some of you have been in our house. A lot of you have been in our house. Some of you haven't yet, and that's a shame. It's something we should remedy soon. But if you've been to our house, if you've been to our house, you know it's very clean. It's a little too clean, actually. It's a little too clean because both of us are neat freaks. And especially my wife, actually. I'll just say it. I mean, our house has got our house has got to be the only house in the neighborhood where bugs are trying to get out. And it's not because they're afraid, it's because they're starving. Whenever you see a bug, he's just standing there holding a sign saying, Please, just give me a scrap of something. And why is this? Well, it's because it's part of the list that we've made for ourselves. Ellen and I would tell you that we don't believe that cleanliness is next to godliness, but then you would come over and then you would say, You guys are liars. And you'd be right. We are liars. Because our house is reflective of what's on our list, isn't it? And some of you sitting right here have been thinking, well, that's it. We're never having the burgers over to our house (laughs) because it's never going to be as clean as theirs. And that would be a tragedy for you to impose on yourself someone else's list making so that it prevents or damages or even kills a relationship. And then there's some of you who are sitting here thinking, well, you haven't been to my house yet. I'll show you what clean really is, Ellen (laughs) Berger. And you probably could. There's always somebody cleaner than you. And there's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody faster. There's always someone whose life looks more put together and it might actually be so. And so we list takers and we list makers are a very tired and exhausted people because the list doesn't have an end. And I'm not just talking about house cleaning and homemaking comparisons, obviously. We take down lists we see others make, and we try to match them or beat them. We impose our own made-up lists on others, oftentimes without them even knowing about it. And some of us impose lists that we know are far too difficult for anyone else, but we impose them on ourselves. Because we could take it. They may not be, but we're the Navy SEAL who could. And then we beat ourselves up for never completing them, never accomplishing them. And the point of Psalm 15 is not to give us another list ...to perform. Make no mistake about it... ...it is... ...it is God's requirement... ...of the person who would be in relationship with him. It is... ...God's immovable... ...non-negotiable list... ...describing the character... ...and the virtue and the integrity... ...of those who would be his worshipers. But it's a list... God knows better than us that we cannot and will not ever be able to perform this side of glory. If we read and interpret Psalm 15 and then go away thinking, well, it's going to be tough, but I think I can do it, then we don't understand Psalm 15. This is why Jesus went up on the mountain beginning in Matthew 5, and then he preached a long sermon running for three chapters, we heard the opening and then the closing lines of that sermon a few moments ago from Jeff. Like this psalm, it was a sermon about what kingdom worshippers will be like. That's what the Beatitudes are. This is what kingdom living and kingdom worshippers are to be like. It's what they will be like, and it's what they're to be like now. It was a sermon on the law. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on the law. Just as this psalm is a song about the law. And one of Jesus' main points for giving us this sermon on the law was this. You've heard the law described for you and your leaders and teachers and ways that make it seem doable but let me tell you what my father really requires. You've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who has anger in his heart towards his brother is a murderer, is guilty of murder. That's how you should understand that commandment, Jesus says. And he continues on from there, raising the bar with every explanation. He's like a track coach from your worst nightmare standing in front of a bunch of list-taking high jumpers like us saying, you thought the bar was only here, but I've got news for you. It's actually way, way, way up there. Who'd like to go first? That's the Sermon on the Mount. And his purpose for doing this was not to separate the men from the boys. It, was, it wasn't to separate the committed from the mediocre. It was to make a crowd of list takers and a crowd of list makers realize that they're really nothing but a crowd of list breakers. And yes, I know that rhymes and sounds cheesy, but you'll probably remember it. But that's his point. You've broken this list. You keep breaking this list. You're breaking this list right now while you hear me preach this sermon, Jesus intended to say. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was doing what God, the Spirit, is doing through David here in Psalm 15. He's saying, Put down your pad and your pen, stop the list making. Tear it all up. Stop creating false identities for yourselves by creating lesser lists that are easier to complete and easier to accomplish, but don't impress God one bit. Stop creating false identities for yourselves by imposing your standards on everyone else so that you can feel better about yourself for five minutes. Psalm 15 and the Sermon on the Mount call all of us to fall down on the confetti of our torn up lists in fear and despair and in the presence of the ultimate list creator and just say to him, I've got nothing. I don't belong on your holy hill, God. I don't belong in your tent. I cannot meet the admission Requirements. And then he smiles. Because that's the response he wants from you. And he says, yep. That's right. You got the point. But do you know who does belong on my holy hill? The one who gave you his sermon on the mount. Psalm 15 is not the list God thinks you and I will live out before him perfectly. Not yet. We will someday. Psalm 15 is the list Jesus fulfilled. Cassiodorus, the church father, quotes that I quoted from before. He he says, The Lord Christ entered the temple at Jerusalem free from sins where others had entered the house of God for purification, he was the only one to enter in such a way as to stand before the Father's face without blemish. And so the law did not bestow anything on him. But as the best legislator, he fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus did with the law. He fulfilled it. He completed it. He kept it. I don't know if you know where the world's clearest lake is located. You could probably guess fairly easily if I gave you more than just a few seconds. But it's in New Zealand, of course. Along with every other freak of nature, natural wonder, that's waiting to be put in a Peter Jackson film. Located in Nelson Lakes National Park, Blue Lake holds the title of the world's clearest lake. Scientific tests carried out in 2011 by New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research showed Blue Lake to be the clearest natural body of fresh water known to man. According to the results, visibility in the lake is up to 80 meters or 262 feet. Meaning that the water is considered almost as optically clear as distilled water. And in many places the Bible describes God's law like looking at your own reflection on the surface of a pristine lake. And if the law could look into this clear New Zealand lake to see its reflection, the law would see the face of Jesus. And if Jesus could look into that same lake, he would see the law and standing behind it, the face of his Father. Jesus met all the requirements of admission to the holy tent of God. He alone is the man of integrity of Psalm 15, who has perfect relationship with the Father. The last line of our psalm reads, that he who does these things shall never be moved, And that man is Christ. He has done all of these things, and he is these things. And he shall never be moved. And at the cross of his death, God's holy and unobtainable list was nailed beside him and nailed through him. It was nailed there not because there was anything wrong with it, not because God doesn't care about it anymore. It was nailed there because Jesus has kept it completely. And so now you and I can run up God's holy hill. Like Colin said a few minutes ago. We can run into God's tent because the curtain has been torn and the door is always open. In Jesus, we can never be moved from the Father's presence. We can love the list creator because his son is the great list keeper for us. Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension to the Father is so important because his entrance into the presence of God is ours too. The Father has accepted and received Jesus' perfect list keeping and he's delighted. He's delighted to count Jesus' work as ours. And so tear up your lists. Turn them into confetti. Jesus' work means that they don't mean anything anymore, ultimately. Take Jesus' much better list as yours. This is how the Father has loved you, and so now you can love him.